everyone. I'm Jacob Garrison, host of Champions of Security. Welcome back. My guest today is David Attington. David has more than 20 years of experience as an IT security manager, intelligence officer, cybersecurity team leader, senior security consultant, and IT security manager. David served the United States Army, specializing in intelligence operations and cybersecurity. He was also a senior information security consultant with extensive experience in penetration testing and auditing financial institutions. He was the security manager for three degrees. He's currently working at Paramount as a security engineer. David has experience in both offensive and defensive cybersecurity, as well as systems administration and programming. He has a bachelor's degree in IT, a master's degree in information systems engineering, and he has a CISSP, PMPPT, certified ethical hacker, ITIL, and Project Plus certifications. David, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Perfect. So one thing I really want to start off with is for everybody listening, uh, David has a hilarious LinkedIn presence, and and I highly recommend you follow him there. Uh, but one thing that you post quite a bit about are the so-called LinkedIn influencers. And, and I'm wondering... Would you mind talking about that issue to start uh, and kind of like w- what your thoughts are and why it's been sort of a hot topic for you? So uh, I'm sure you've seen it at least with the AI segment that whenever something becomes a, a hot commodity, um, people come out of the woodwork and they are self-professed experts. And um, I think, you know, my best recommendation for people is just, you know, look at this cautiously because there are a lot of people out there. They don't have your best interest in mind. Um, they, they really don't. And um uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of it just comes from the fact that security is a hot industry and, you know, people kind of want to get into it one way or another. But the problem is, it was when you get the bad information, this information isn't regulated, it's not scrutinized, it's not looked at with any sort of criticism. And that creates problems because you have all these people who are trying to get into security and they're looking for advice. They're coming out to LinkedIn, they're coming out to these Discord channels and they're looking for advice. They're looking like, help me, where do I start? And the first thing they see, of course, is just due to, you know, their, their presence in the algorithm, they see people saying, oh, you know, install Kali Linux. Like, okay, now what? You know, where, where's the guidance? You know, here's 50 links. You know, what, does, what, and what is it going to do for somebody who's just getting, getting into security? It does nothing. They, you need to almost have like this sort of path set for them. And you need to be doing it from a source where, you know, from, from a place where you're not trying to just benefit yourself. You're trying to do it from a place where you're trying to help others and help others find their way. And that, 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 yeah, that makes sense. And so when you're talking about this topic, the LinkedIn influencer, right? It's the break into security persons. The first, well, and yeah, it's breaking your, yeah. Here's exactly. seven, here's seven ways for you to start your cybersecurity career. Right. Um, and, and so you're talking about, you know, like Kali Linux or like create a virtual machine and have, you know, have something that you can use to, securely hack other people um, and those, those sorts of pieces of advice, which like you said, like they're, they're not going to actually help someone learn the real material. Right. Um, so, so when you're thinking of, let's say you were, the positions were flipped and you were trying to create the program for like, Hey, here's how you should start learning about cybersecurity. Uh, what would your advice be for these people? You know, if you had to be in the hot seat and you had to come up with what, like the order of things they should learn. First of all, everyone comes into cybersecurity has a different point of access, right? You got some people who are network administrators. You got some people who are web designers. You got some people who just weren't, you know, anything to do with cybersecurity. So you kind of have to figure out what their baseline is. You know, do you know what Linux is? Do you, did you know how to use a command line? Do you know what the command line is? 
and you know these are all teachable things you know i'd, I'd say within a, probably a few months you can get somebody pretty proficient with things like just command line linux and just how to, how to move around navigate do scripting things like that but if you don't know what your baseline is you don't really know where to you know you don't know where to put them on the trail to get them started so i think a lot of that is just figuring out you know what, what the skill level is and that way you know that way people want to jump into a certain part you can um are you familiar with um, Duolingo? Yeah, yeah, the language app. So you, yeah, you can go to different languages. Yeah, and that one has a really cool system involved where it says, okay, you know what you're doing here, so we're going to recommend you skip to this lesson instead. That's that's an interesting thought. So create a, an educational software or, or system where you say, hey, here's the different tracks, the different types of things you could learn, and you pick a track. Um, so instead of picking, picking Portuguese, you pick, you know, like, penetration testing or something right uh and then it says hey talk about this topic or demonstrate this proficiency or, or whatever it may be and then they try to just accelerate you to to your next jumping off point yeah and and i mean certification books do that some of the, time the books out there will do that like okay if you answered all these questions you can probably just skip ahead to this next next section i think it was the cisco books that did that the ccna books where they said answer these questions you went and looked, this, looked it up and you were you were correct with all of them, then, you know, move on to the next. You're good. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good idea. And I guess, have you, do you think it would be worth having a, like a a mentorship? Like, would it be worth finding somebody who is in the industry to say, yeah. hey, yes. how, like, what should I do first? What that is absolutely important because I've got a story about that. Um, I, I was in Army Cyber, now Fort Gordon. Um, working there as a, as a red team leader and and um, help set up some um, intelligence fusion cells, but I didn't have any guidance. I just had the books. I had the classes. I went to all the you know the, the investing classes. But it wasn't until I got work as a consultant, as a senior consultant, um, that I really started working around people who were experts in their particular domains. And I realized, like, man, I don't really know as much as I thought I did. I don't know anything actually. <laughs> Um, because, um, a lot of the stuff, a lot, a lot of the, um, a lot of the training you get out there is just hack this box, hack this one machine and let's, let's create this house of mirrors of like subdomains and stuff like that and throw all sorts of tricks in there. And it's not like that on the job. If you're actually going to be a pen tester and do pen testing things, you're going to have, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have a domain, you're going to have like 500 some odd hosts and, you know, come down. You can't just sit there and try to do an OSCP on every single one of them in a week. Not going to work. So um, a lot of that was just sort of um, reframing. And that's not something you get from a course. That's something you get from a mentor. If you sit there and tell you, you need to look at it this way. Have you looked at it this way? Have you looked at it? Have you analyzed the problem in this manner? Um, that that type of thing. The, the thing is this, you know, an online course wouldn't give you. Yeah, that's it's <clears throat> kind of reminds me of when you're, trying to fix a bug in software and you take sort of a, a binary search approach where you say, Hey, we're going to do something to try to divide it into one or one of these two buckets. Right. And then based on where the problem is, we're going to, you know, find our way to it in the most efficient way possible. Now, right. um, and, and so is that, do you think that's possible in pen testing? Are you able to reframe things and, and isolate where you think there's going to be mistakes or, um, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a pen tester. So I would, I would love to know, sort of like how you're able to do it efficiently. Oh, so I guess it's just something you just sort of do on the fly. Um, 
and I, I think is um one of my one of my first mentors actually he was he led my CISFP boot camp back when I was stationed at Fort Gordon is um he said it's not about knowing as it is being able to think around a problem and he brought up heart bleed he's like okay heart bleed very technical very interesting um very interesting um exploit but the thing with heart bleed is he's like how does somebody think of that how to think how does somebody think of, of doing something like that he's like that's that's where the skill comes in. So somebody able to look at this and say, I wonder if I just did this instead, if I find an exploit. And that's, that's kind of the, um, that's where the magic, I guess <laughs> that the magic comes in is just me to look at something and saying, okay, I'm going to think around this corner and find something that hasn't been thought of before. Interesting. And so when you're, when you, like, let's say you're, you were interviewing somebody for a role on your team, right? How, how would you look for that creative thinking ability? How would you, you know, be able to assess like, is this person able to think outside of the box and, and try to come up with a solution and, and attack it, you know, in, in a various way? Like what, what sort of things demonstrate someone's ability to do that? Okay. But here, here's, here's the cool part here is you can't really coach somebody anything outside of the box and you can't do it yourself. You're, you're wasting your time. Um, so what you really need to do is you, you give them a scenario. And you let them work through it. Talk me through this. Talk me through how you tell this problem. You don't have to tell me, you know, what tools you use. You don't have to tell me how you do it. Just tell me what do you see here and how would you work around it? How would you solve it? And as they talk, if you realize you're struggling on something that they probably understand, that's another kind of skill you have to have is if you see them struggling on something and you know they know it, but they're just having trouble articulating it, just give them that little, that little nudge. And okay, it sounds like you're trying to say this, but do you really mean this? Yeah, start, or, or is this what you're getting at? Because um, for starters, interviews are stressful for people. Um, it's not a conversation. That's a lie. Um, <laughs> interviews are not a conversation between two people. That is not true at all. There is a power dynamic um, because these people, they're in there for the interviews. Who knows how long they've been at work for starters? They could have been at work for months. And they they need you know to keep the lights on. They need to keep their mortgage paid, feed their family, things like that. So you have to be really careful with that too. You you have to, you know, not treat it like you're having a conversation. Treat it like you're trying to evaluate where they're at. And again, it goes back to that nudging, just to figure out are they stuck or they just really don't know. But that that's how you do it though. You just sort of um give them something to work with, give them something to bite into, and just observe how they analyze things and think through problems. Got it. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. It's something I've seen in in good interviewers. Um, and it's something where. You know, I've, I've even made that mistake when I'm interviewing others where I will, uh, you know, I, like I'm not able to give them the nudge they need. And I know they need a nudge, but I won't do it in the correct way. You know, it's, it's right. a really tough skill to be able to, in that situation, help somebody, but also not give away the answer. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's challenging. Well, and, and people are differently. Um, I used to teach um, basically counting in binary, counting in octal, and counting in hexadecimal. And what I found is um, it's all about perspective. You explain to them textbook how to how to count in octal, how to count in hexadecimal. They're gonna be lost. You're gonna, you're gonna have a lot of people be lost. And if you just did it by the book and you just did your job as an educator, they're gonna be lost. And you're just gonna count them as you know just casually a bore. But um, the reality is, I think in 99% of the cases that's arbitrary. Um, but in virtually all cases, it's all a matter of showing it to them in a different perspective, show it to them in a way they understand. That's yeah. 
And I, I think the public answers a lot of questions about teaching, educating, and just showing people how to learn and get into a field is it isn't about their educational capacity because that's kind of a misnomer. You're looking at showing it to them in a way they'll understand and their brain will click. Because once that click happens, they're on fire. They're going to learn everything that comes after that. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, yeah, it means very critical to set people up for success. And, and you brought up like counting, counting in binary and octal and hexadecimal. So I guess I'm curious, like, is that something that you see as a, as a crucial skill for people that are doing pen testing? Once again, I'm not a pen tester. Like, do you have to be able to count in base eight or base 16? And right? that was an argument. That was actually an argument about that, about how important that was. Um, it was on discord actually and come to an argument about that. And I said, it's useless. And I'm like, okay, it's useful. It's not critical. You're not going to make or break you, but there'll be times where you probably just don't have to Google it, which most people I think will do. They'll just Google, go to a, you know, hex to octal converter, which is safer. But, you know, but I think you, know, you think about things like subnetting and things like that and things you have to do in your head on the fly. You can save a lot of time. You can be a lot more efficient if you can just do that stuff on the fly. And you don't have to like be an expert. You don't have to look at massive strings of ones and zeros and say, oh, that's 5,432. <laughs> you don't have to know that. You just have to know, okay, real quick, that's 16. That's eight. Yeah. Just, yeah, it, there, there's no real math going on because you're kind of over that. You just know where the ones and the zeros are positioned. You, you just know real quick in your head where it's at. And that just saves you some time. I mean, again, it, it's not going to make or break you at all. Yeah. And then be kind of a jerk thing to ask her in an interview, too. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. That'd be rude. Yeah. I mean, depending on how low level you're dealing with, you know, people right. that, are, that are doing uh, like assembly language programming and like really low level. Stuff. Right, it's probably pretty important for them to understand bitwise operations, um, whereas right. people who are you know way abstracted away from that, like developers that are just connected to APIs, probably don't think about it ever. And you can probably teach it in just a matter of managing. Yeah, definitely. It's all about the, they, they teach it in grade school actually, like different numbered systems. We got what do we get? The Mayans. They taught the Mayan the Mayan numbered system, which is really really vicious because I think changes each placeholder over. Intra- I did not. I've never heard of the mind. It is a pain. To me. That is a painful thing to learn. If you can learn that, that's just... that was that was a tough one. <laughs> cool. I'll have to look that up afterwards. <laughs> so, one thing you've touched on several times so far uh, was, you know, your service in the military and, and the different things you learned um, different places. And I, I've noticed a lot of security people have a military service background. Um, so, can you can you talk about you know? How do you think your service affected like your career path? How did it help you? You know, the sort of like things that were instilled maybe, um, just kind of like how that changed your trajectory. So not to, not to say I can promote in the army, but that changed my trajectory entirely. Um, so I grew up in a small steel mill town. Um, not a lot of prospects here. You either work in steel mill or you didn't work, um, for the most part. So that was very difficult. And the army was kind of a way out of that. Um, what it did teach me was a lot of technical skills for starters. Um, cause I went in as a 33 whiskey, which was an electronic worker systems integrator and maintainer, which later became 35 tango. And I'm not sure what it is now, but, um, that's what it was last I checked. Anyway, um, point being is that was a very technical school. It was a one year long school. So, um, I spent over a year with drill sergeants and that sort of basic training esque lifestyle. So 
that really helped me do things like just get get patterns, get routines, um, focus on studying, focus on learning, um, you know, taking care of myself and being exposed to a lot of different viewpoints. Um, so a lot of that really helped. And just, you know, things like the free college, um, free training. Um, my career changed um, trajectories a number of times. Um, I worked in electronic warfare systems for a number of years. Um, then I became an intelligence officer. So that's why I moved in thinking like counterinsurgency, counterintelligence, which that was really what benefited my contesting career the most was being able to think like a bad guy. Um, a lot of that, you know, you have to have a look at your infrastructure, look how things are laid out and think, okay, if I were trying to break this or ruin it or make somebody's day utterly miserable, how would I do this? What things do I use? What things would I use to my advantage? Um, and I mean, things like even like where the sun is positioned, you know, where you put your ambush in relation to the sun at that time of day. Um, things like that really got you thinking about other things too, when you're doing pen tests of like, how can I hide my position? Um, how can I do the most, most amount of damage in the shortest period of time? And how do I get out? So oh, when you, when you think about most amount of damage in the shortest period of time, can you give a specific example and I'm sure you had, you know, a, a secret or a top secret clearance, You're probably limited in what you can say about the army specifically, but, uh, can you talk about like in pen testing, you know, what's a specific example of most amount of damage and least amount? Oh, okay. Um, just, just for example, um, the route to DA, like typically that, that, that's, that's the, you know, that, that's the golden mouse that everybody's trying to get to is, um, is to DA. What's the fastest way to get to DA? I'm not trying to sit here and do some elaborate thing and show off. I just want to get the DA. And once I get to DA, what can I do? And that's where you get the value that the client is where you're saying, okay, this person, once you're here, they could do this, this, and this. And they will. They don't, especially if they don't like you, they can do this. Uh, but most likely they're, they're, they're going to, you know, they're going to lock up your, um, lock up your data and ransom it and hit this is how much they can do at each particular point in, the, in my journey, um, throughout this contestant engagement. Um, Things like, you know, your, you know, your Wi-Fi is connected to your internal network. Here's, as a bad guy, here's how I'd quickly get in. Here's what I'd go for right off the bat. Um, the data I would take out right off the bat just so I have it. And that just is where I work from there. So just thinking, I wouldn't expect a bad guy thinking like, an, like somebody who's an opportunist. What would an opportunist go for? And, and so in your experience, is, is Ransom the number one goal of people who are breaking in like is that is that the most profitable thing for them to say hey if we can steal all of this data we're able to ex or we can expect you know x amount of dollars in ransom most likely that's the one that gets the most headlines i would say the data is the number one goal so be it ransomware be it exfil the data be it selling it to the um, dark web you know it's a business i mean it, it's a complete industry now i mean i've been reading reports now that people uh these groups they're um they're actually taking almost like a board like um like a corporation board like um approach to things. Interesting. So you just all get in one room and uh, and have the conversations face to face. You think that's uh? Perfect? I don't know how they're doing it, but they're but they're doing it, and it, because they're they're looking to maximize profits, growth, things like that. Um, it's it's like a corporation now, which makes sense because it started off a small business. And, you know, over time they just grew and became a corporation, kind of like the, the Walmart of hackers. <laughs> the Walmart of hackers. Do you think, do you think it would be more like a Walmart or more like a cartel in terms of 
you know, like I think people are, are, uh, you know, like taking a capitalist approach or do you think it's more of like, Hey, we have to do this. So we don't all eat each other's lunch. See, that depends. Um, it's never that simple. It's never as simple as like, Oh, you're this and you're that it's, it is complicated. These, these relationships and things are there. They're complicated. It's never as simple as like, Oh, you're a cartel or you're this or you're that. It really depends on the people and what they're trying to do. And I'm sure there's some collaboration. I'm sure there's some sort of collaboration coordination, but I mean, in the end, they're looking for money. Yeah. They're looking for money. It, it breaks down to your basic human elements. What, what, what do humans, ambitious humans normally go for? They go for power, influence, wealth, not necessarily in that order, but they go for it. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and so when people are, you know, trying to, trying to break in, one thing that's never gone away is the concept of phishing, right? Um, like phishing emails and, and I guess in your experience, like how much danger does a phishing email pose today for, for an organization? No, I mean, again, that depends because here's the <laughs> problem. Here's the problem. Um, people blame the human element on this, on phishing. Like, oh, you click the link, you are the weakest link, humans are the weakest link. No, that's not true because you've given somebody enough time, somebody's determined enough, I guarantee you they can make an email that you will not be able to tell from the real thing. And to make things even more interesting, <laughs> One thing I've noticed now is that other businesses that have partnerships, they'll get hacked. And what they'll do is once those email accounts are hacked, they'll send emails to the other business portraying or basically um, masquerading as that person saying, hi, I remember we had a business deal on back in 2022 and I'd like you to look over this proposal for a new business proposal. That's not really that guy. Yeah. Um, and I, I've had a few near misses with that where I've had to like call the board and I you guys need to stop. You guys need to stop like right now because this is not real. This is not real at all. Um, yeah. But so going back to the fishing thing, that's a way in. That That is a foothold. But you can thwart it any million number of different ways. Um, well, the worst things I've seen ever happen was when you give your users too, too much access. You give them too many privileges. Can you... It, it should you it should stop right there at the user and it should be detected like okay weird stuff is happening with the user let's cut this off so true the initial failure will come from the person but I wouldn't call it a failure because you never know how elaborate that phishing email was yeah. are you really gonna, are you are you really gonna blame somebody in accounting for getting an email from another accounting department side another business that used to do business with that looks legitimate and has a signature are you, are you gonna blame them for that yeah, you know, but, you're, if you're a good peer or coworker, whoever, whoever it is, not coworker, I guess in this case, but, you know, associate, business associate, sends you an email, and you, your guard is going to be way lower. And I've yeah. heard people in security say that, where they say, hey, just so you know, like, I will not open attachments from, from like, salespeople or from whoever, the like people I don't know. But they're like, but if it's someone I know, I'll open the attachment. And so to your point, they're admitting right there, they're saying, hey, if it came from a source that appears legitimate, then, then yeah, I have no issue clicking on this PDF or clicking on this, whatever it may be. So just happened to watch, we had a client and I think it was Utah where this happened, but this, this is just a re just a really weird coincidence. But what happened was, uh, we were doing a phishing test and, um, the security manager there, he was a really sharp guy. I mean, he knew what he knew what he was doing. He was very alert. Didn't click any bad links. What had happened was our phishing campaign was a dress code change. That was, that was our, um, basically what we're using as our, as our platform. Okay. What had happened was, and this is a pure coincidence, 
he had just gotten into an argument with somebody about an actual dress code change that was coming up there. A very, very, very livid argument. And you didn't know about this? We didn't know about this. We had no idea. Had this livid argument with this guy. And not even that, but when the guy did the campaign, my coworker did the campaign, he signed it as a person he just had the argument with. Wow. So is that, it was that, did you go to the casino afterwards and gamble some money? Like, like that seems like pretty good luck. I don't know. But, um, so what it breaks down to is just the fact that you can't rely on people not clicking links. That's unfair. It's unfair to people. And, you know, it's like the number one way to get in. And it's the way most criminal organizations try to get in. So they're doing it left and right. And you, you can't blame your employees for that. Unless it's just so blatantly obvious. And you could just say, okay, you probably should have noticed that. But they're, they're just becoming more and more complex. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's also the two different approaches, right? Where if you're, if you're spamming every single email address you can find with a generic phishing email, just hoping somebody clicks on it and hoping like, like, like you're just throwing it out there. Or you could be somebody who really wants to break into this organization and knows the org chart and is very, very specific about how they're going about it. Right. Like you like you email HR and like, hey, do you have any of these roles open? No, I don't have any of these roles open at this time. And down below is their signature block. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you, you can definitely be a lot more strategic. And you don't know if the attacker that's going after you is going to be doing the, the blanket approach or the very tailored. Yeah. I've had some with local signature blocks. Just copy and pasting the our signature block into your own. Yeah. And then it, it at first glance looks like the right person, Matt, yeah. you're used to. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's dangerous out there. And and so one thing you talked about was users having too much permissions and being able to stop it at the user level or or you know, detect the 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 unusual behavior. Um can can you talk a little bit more about that and what that looks like? Okay. Um so I have so many examples of this, but um, one was a client I had in Montana. Um, here's what happened was it was a secretary, new hire, brand new hire, first day at the job, and I think she had used the variation, the default um, password, which, by the way, if you're using the same password for initial password resets, that, every password should be random. <laughs> but she used a variation of it. She basically used a variation of it for her real password. And basically, you know, I think I had like, Four tries before um, four tries before the fifth one, which would lock you out of the system. Um, so somewhere between the first and fourth try, I got her password. Well, and bear in mind, this all happens within a period of just a few minutes. It doesn't take long. I found that not only was she local admin, but everybody was local admin on this one laptop. So I pivoted over to that laptop as local administrator, and I was able to get everybody else's password to include the MSSP that they had at the time. So... Within, I say within a span of five minutes, I compromised the entire bank and their MSSP because the MSSP was using the same password in other accounts. So. That's that's pretty good. It's not it. It's not, not good. Right. good. I'm, not, I'm not even bragging. This is very very textbook. I mean, it's a, again, it's something they don't teach very well in courses or in schools. It's just the I call it the flash to bang. Once you know what you're looking for, and once you know how to look for what you're looking for. It's fast. It's really fast. I think my record is under a minute, 48 seconds, full compromise of a network. Yeah. And it's not bragging. It's not me. It's not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a particularly smart person. So it's more about just knowing how to maneuver around that network. Just something you just pick up with time. 
Yeah. Yeah. And default passwords, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I, I, I don't like them as a practice, you know, like it, it's, it's scary to me because to your point, people like the path of least resistance. And so for a lot of users, it's human psychology. They go like, ah, this doesn't matter to me. Like, I'll just pick something easy that I can do. It's like, I'll, I'll add an exclamation mark, right? Like, I'll just do that. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, you give me an organization of more than a hundred people. I guarantee you something like summer 2023 is going to work. Spring 2023 is going to work. Winter 2022 exclamation point or some other stupid random character. After that. <laughs> it's going to work. It's going to work by somebody somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking the other day, not the, I guess it was probably six months ago now, but I stayed at this hotel and I was in room four and the Wi-Fi password was, was the name of the hotel and the number four for my room. Each room had their own Wi-Fi network. And so just for fun, I went to all of the other rooms and it was all the same. It was the name of the hotel and then the room number. And the room number was in the name of the Wi-Fi too. So it's like the most insane thing. Somebody took the time to set unique passwords. And that was what they chose for their scheme of unique passwords. I am so hesitant to do anything like that. I am so like, I think if I don't, I don't want to go to jail. I think it's probably my role motivator. But I see things like you go to a website and it's like this 1994 GeoCities looking website. And you're like, okay, the thing's honorable. The thing is super vulnerable. And you have to say, okay, I'm not even going to test anything against this. Because you're curious, because as a pen tester, you're naturally curious and you just kind of just want to see, okay, will this even work? But you don't. Just jail. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the the dopamine rush of figuring it out versus going to jail. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of an, it's an interesting point. Like, you know, you probably could do it, which makes you kind of want to do it. Um, but, but yeah, if, if you're not approved, if they're not okay with you attacking their system, then. Right. Because next, your next step would be send them an email saying, Hey, I found those vulnerability. I'm trying to help you. And they're like, well, we don't want your help and call the cops. <laughs> All of a sudden the cops show up at your doorstep. Not good. That, that, that actually happened to, um, kept a couple pen testers here in Washington. Um, they were, they were, th this is, um, something to watch out for too. When you look to, you look at your pen testing, um, the rules of engagement, what had happened was they'd gone to this government place and they were basically told to like, okay, try to break in here. It, you know, they're lock picking to get inside the building. Police pull up. They're like, okay, we work for so-and-so. Um, here's our rules of engagement. Here's our get out of jail free card and all that good stuff. Turned out the person who authorized them wasn't authorized to authorize them. That didn't even correct sentence, but what, anyway. What what, what did the person actually work at the company? Like, was it at least? Yeah, yeah it, it, the person worked it. It just for authorized to approve that. Oh, okay. And they were arrested. Those, those two guys were arrested. They even they were even like sharing like lockpicking tips with the, with the police where they were arrested. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's something you gotta. So, how do you protect yourself from that if you're doing physical pen testing? Like, how do you know the person that's authorizing you is allowed to authorize you? As a pen tester, that typically wouldn't be your job unless you're really, 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 really small. Um, typically that's the job of the product manager and just, you know, to, to, to where the principal is, they need to keep an eye on that type of thing. Okay. And you're, but you're kind of at the mercy of their ability to <laughs> sort of figure that out. So. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully they're not sending too many of their employees to jail. <laughs> yeah, one of our guys that wanted poster at the bank once. He had a wanted poster? Yep. They even had a picture of him. They, they caught him on the camera and everything. It was a picture of him walking out the door. That's, I mean, that, that's gotta be kind of like a badge of honor, you know, to, oh, to no, be no. in a bank. 
That was hilarious, actually. And we talked about that for a while. Yeah. So when when you're looking at you know your pen testing efforts, to what extent are you guided by like regulatory standards? So take you know CCPA or GDPR, something like that. You know, like to what extent does that guide your efforts or um, or at all? It, it does. It does. And like a lot of it, I wouldn't even say it's CCPA. It's just you know good housekeeping. Good housekeeping, being respectful and mindful of your client and the you know the, the client's clients. Um, at the same time, for example, um, I had a pen test at a hospital once and, you know, there were findings and I had to know where to draw the line. It's like, okay, I know you have open chairs on this x-ray machine. And I know if I open up this folder, I'm going to see people's x-rays without authorization. So uh, a lot of it just being my blood to say, okay, I'm going to stop here because, you know, this privacy, you know, for starters, it will definitely violate HIPAA. Um, yeah. but second of all, it's just, <clears throat> just having a general respect. I would say the general respect for people's privacy. And that's kind of what guides me. So I, I don't really need CCPA to tell me, that, you know, don't access this or delete all the stuff when you're done. It's just general courtesy. Just what what I would want done for me, if I were, you know, if I were a client somewhere and, you know, they were they were running a pen test and they had all these findings. I would really appreciate if they would like just delete all the information. So that, that's what I do. I mean, every client I start with a fresh VM. You know, everything's gone. Um, don't retain any information like that. Um, the reporting, I make sure the reporting is sanitized. Things like that, yeah. So, yeah just, keeping just, the actual data out of the fine because you don't need you don't need the data to prove right, you did it. I, I you're right. I don't need to show you the X-ray. I just say this folder, which probably contains you know sensitive information, is you know is open. So lock it down. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. And what about to the extent of like the where, where you've worked at a company where you're responsible for securing the actual posture? So like you're at Paramount now. Um, you know, how do, how do those regulatory standards guide what you do outside of penetration testing, you know, just for your own defenses? Um, I would say the same thing. I would say exactly the same thing. When I'm defending things, I defend it as though it were my information. Like, would I want this information getting out? No, I wouldn't. So how would I defend it? So just, you know, very, very, um, very golden ruley type of thing is where you just look and say, okay, this is people's important information. This is their... They expect me to keep it safe, so that's what you do. This would, with, you know, within your own limits of your own capabilities, you do everything you can to secure it. No shortcuts, nothing like that. You can do the right thing. Yeah, and how hard is it? Do you think for people to to like keep up on best practices? Because I think one area where where like people are trying to do the right thing, but you have this breakdown is, you know, there's so many different ways information or data could get leaked. You have, you know, like your software team that's doing a bunch of development. A lot of those people probably don't know best practices, right? Like you just, you, there's so many variables. So, so like what power, I guess, do you, do you feel like a security org has to, to make sure everyone's doing the right thing? Uh, I'm going to throw the legalese term in there is, um, due diligence. Okay. So you can stay within the framework of, of like a compliance framework, say like NIST or, um, something like ISO. You can, you can stay within that framework. And sure, it'll, it'll cover most things, but are you, you know, are you doing what you need to do? I guess this is a million dollar question. Are, are, you, are you doing what you need to do to keep this safe? Because typically if you're doing all the right things, you will exceed most compliance frameworks pretty easily. Okay. So, and so and go, sorry, go ahead. Are you... So, so you, you, you sort of use it as a guide, 
But I mean, just for example, I mean, for years in the integers recently, NIST was saying like eight character passwords. Okay, that's a terrible idea. Eight character passwords crack, you know, fast, really fast. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you have to sort of look at that and say, okay, but I really want to keep this information safe. So what else can I do? And, you know, just, just I've been shouting from the rooftop for years that we're going to hit a point where MFA is going to be required across the board. And, you know, cyber and cyber insurance um, companies are going to require it too. And customers are going to expect that. Yeah. So yeah. It's just basically, and you have to be on top of that before it becomes a rule. You have to look at it and say, okay, this isn't working. The, this eight character password thing isn't working. You know, the, you know, the, these rule sets are not working. These ACLs are not working, things like that. And you have to look at it and just, you know, be ahead of the game. You can't, you can't wait for, for, you can't wait for like a regulatory body or you can't wait for the next NIST publication to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you there. You know, making sure that you're doing the thing that you know is right to protect the information. And I signed up for a service the other day and I had to use a 20 character password and they used MFA. Uh, I kind of like laughed. I was like, oh man, you've taken this pretty seriously, huh? <laughs> they really did not want it getting compromised. Uh, but it was cool to see that people are, you know, some people are taking it seriously yeah. and, and trying to protect the information. Mm -hmm. And So have you ever used MFA in a penetration test? Like I, I know there's fatigue attacks where you can just try to spam people with notifications and hope that eventually they click yes just because they're bothered. Like, is Have you ever seen that work in one of your you know, uh, one of your tests. Uh, I've, yeah, I've never actually done that, but I've seen it work. I, I've seen it where it works. And, um, uh, I was a little, I'm, you know, I'm usually typically surprised when it happens. Like, okay, you knew that wasn't you. <laughs> you knew that wasn't you. So it's like, what, what, what said you off? And, you know, it just has me wondering, like, what comes after that? Then? What, what would, what would your next line of defense be? If the MFA fatigue works and the person logs in, like, is there, and there's tools, there's tools out there. We'll say, okay, they had the right password. The MFA was approved, but something else to say, okay, but there's no way because you logged in 10 minutes ago from Los Angeles that you're somewhere in Bangladesh. Log yeah. in. And the stuff's out there. I mean, that, that, that type of, that, that type of monitoring, monitoring is out there, but that's like your next step is that sort of temporal analysis saying, okay, this doesn't make sense. This, this whole process does not make sense. And that probably be your next step and your next, and your next step from there would be just be, you know, if the person does get on, what can they access? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I guess one thing to point out, like you mentioned the, the geo, I don't know what they call it, but the geolocation, um, defense it is some people use VPNs. Like I use a VPN on my laptop. A lot of times I don't use it on my phone. And so you know, like, does my laptop's request appear to come from that proxy service somewhere else, you know, versus where my phone is, and then they have to account for that. I've blocked people. I've, I've actually blocked people who had a VPN going. I was like, okay, that's coming from Ireland. The person works in LA. I blocked them, and they're calling me on the phone. Like, why'd you block me? I was like, you logged in from Ireland, dude. <laughs> What's the latency hit for having a VPN in Ireland if you're in Los Angeles? You have to go all the way over and all the way back. I have no idea. It's probably faster than we think, but yeah, that's interesting. So I guess one thing, one thing that we haven't really talked about is continuing education for people that are already in it. Like you touched on, you know, getting into it and how to, and how to learn. And, um, I guess for people who are already in the industry, right. You're learning all the time, but 
Uh, I noticed you're doing a PhD right now. And, and can I ask, like, do you feel like that is helping no. you in your day job? Or do you mind talking about it? Or is it, is it no, relevant? No, no. And I need to update that on my LinkedIn. Oh, no, okay. That, that's just no longer a thing. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in ABD for life. Um, all the dissertation for life. Did all the courses. But um, it did teach me how to research. How to research and, and really, like, basically criticize my own writing, criticize my own thought processes. Am I being fair here? Am I am I biased? Am I showing bias when I when I research this? Um, am I falling into some logical traps that people fall into? And and I do. We all do. So um, I would say overall, it helped me as a person because I can look at things a lot more analytically and realize what I'm looking at and realize that I might have a, a slanted edge how I view something because because of biases. Um, I may not be approaching it. I may not be. Um, one big thing is, do I know what the problem is? Am I asking the right question? Is, is this really the problem? Oh, just, just things like that. And, 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 and did I actually come up with an, um, a problem that actually can be solved? Interesting. Do you think that concept is in line with the, the penetration test strategy you were talking about at the beginning, like of knowing? No. <laughs> okay. So no, no, no. So it's penetration. It yes and no. Um, sometimes you just have to just do it. Um, sometimes you have to stop being analytical and just say, okay, I'm going to go for what's going, what I think is going to work. And it, it'll, it'll usually pan out, but sometimes you also have to say, okay, I'm in a rabbit hole because I'm convinced this is a way in. That's where the PhD education comes in play because you have to sit there and say, okay, I've been hammering at this thing for like an hour because I'm convinced this is a way in. Meanwhile, two ports over is the actual way into the network yeah not getting stuck on on no. uh the wrong input or the wrong the wrong right. door a door that's going to be firmly locked right because um basically uh, the, like the saying goes when all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail that that's kind of where it falls in the play there it's like okay i let's just say i've done you know active dirty attacks all you know my whole career that's going to be what you turn to yeah and you're going to miss other other types of attacks that could possibly get you access so in the like clients you've had when you're doing penetration testing, or maybe just in your own companies when you're pen testing for yourself, how often do you not find a way in? Like how often do you say, hey, everything's good, it looks great, it's locked down? There's always something. There, there's always there's always something. You may not get the A, but there's always something. There always, and it's really good actually when you can't get in, especially if you have a client and you show up one year and they have a bunch of vulnerabilities. You get the A, you can either report and leave. You come back next year and it's like a whole nother place. You know, they have some system in there that, you know, they're, they're basically whitelisting hashes and things like that. And it's like, wow, you guys took this seriously. That's good. So yeah, I, I've called it good. I've called it a really good, good win. When you come back to a client and they've really taken your, um, taking your recommendations to heart, they've really hardened themselves up. And that, that sort of gives you the opportunity to sort of look for the other things to sort of make them, you know, sort of help them tighten up even more because, you know, they, they fix all the basics, they fix all the common vulnerabilities, and now you can really sort of amp it up to the next level. And, yeah. typically, and typically they love it. I mean, well, most clients love that type of thing, especially the IT departments because they're learning, they're realizing where their weaknesses are, they're excited about it. So, yeah, it helps them figure out how they can continuously improve, continuously get better. And, 
So one one thing I I just don't know because um, it hasn't been my world is do they provide you a, a map of their resources that are they think are attackable? Do they tell you, hey, here's all the different um, like servers that we know we have? Uh, so you just have to figure it all out. It depends. So you you'll hear a lot of talking like white box and black box testing, and usually it falls somewhere in the middle. Um, black box testing is where you have no outside knowledge whatsoever of the network, and you're just going in blind. Um, and then you have the white box where you have the complete map of everything and Please, please attack this because we want it off our network and we need just to submit to the board. So the board will vote to get rid of it. Um, so it kind of goes both ways. Um, I prefer black box testing, but I also prefer white box testing. Now that makes any sense at all. Um, black box testing, because they both have their benefits. Um, black box testing is really neat because it gives the um, clients some sort of idea like, okay, let's say this person has no idea how to get into your network. This is how far they get. White box testing is awesome because it says, okay, we're just going to assume compromise. Show us where all our weak spots are. And they both have really, really, really good uses for the client. It all depends on what they want. And and so do you think that, um, you, you think about like north-south traffic, right? Like in and out of a system or like east-west if you're already inside and like the, um, you know, moving around inside of a compromised system. Do you, do you think that based on what you said, like black box testing is better for that north south. Like, can we break in? Um, and, and white box is better for the lateral movement. Like, how? No. Is, is that sort of the approach there? Not necessarily. Because black box testing just assumes that you don't have any sort of inside access. Usually people do. Um, I was talking today with a, um, with a colleague about this. Is the idea that um, insider threat has become a bit of a commodity. And now they'll, 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 they'll brazenly approach an employee and say, here's $2,000. Can I have your credentials? And sometimes they'll say yes. Sometimes they'll agree to that. What are the legal consequences for knowingly giving away your credentials? How are you going to prove it? I, fair enough. Fair enough. You have, to, you, have to, you have to be really intrusive into the lives to, to sort of figure out when and where that happened because they're probably not going to do it through corporate channels. Yeah. They're, they're going to find them on LinkedIn and say, oh, you work here. Um, you know, here's five thousand dollars. I have your credentials. Yeah, that's I. I guess I hadn't even really considered that before. But that's yeah, yeah that's a scary thought. It, it's all scary. <laughs> Let's be honest. It, it's all pretty scary. Um, but again, that that's why zero trust. You know, buzzwordy as it may be, there there's some validity there. Yeah, that's so you hope for it buzzwords. You hope that there's something behind them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so David, we're, we're about out of time here. So before we go, I want to, first off, thank you again so much for joining. And, and I want to give you the opportunity to make a call to action, to, to say something to the audience. So yeah, you have the stage. Is there anything you want, uh, you want to say to the people? Oh, so many things. Um, but the one thing is, um, most of these complex attacks are not complex. They're coming through basic misconfigurations, basic errors, um, in the way your systems are configured. They're coming at through user error, um, user configuration errors, basic stuff. Look at the colonial pipeline attack. That was a stale account without MFA, a stale admin account without MFA, and they crippled an entire oil pipeline. Um, these attacks are not usually complex. Um, the more complex ones are usually safe for the researchers who responsibly disclose it um, to the company to begin with, so it was never really too much of a threat. But yeah, I would say that virtually all successful attacks that I've launched have been through misconfigurations, basic things. So focus on the basics, focus on the things that um, are really easy fixes and things you should have been doing all along. 
because it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. They just haven't gotten to you yet. So that's my, that's my call to action. All right. Great advice. Thank you, David. Really appreciate the time. And yeah, thanks so much for joining today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Champions of Security. Be sure to come back next week. We're going to have another exciting guest on this very streaming platform. See you there.